morning. Good morning. Our scripture passage passage for today is coming is going to come out of Romans chapter eight, verse thirty-five to thirty-nine. Romans chapter eight, verse thirty-five to thirty-nine. And once you uh, open up your Bibles, there, if you could just stand as your act of worship to read and receive God's holy word together as a church community here today. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 39. If you can follow along with me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. If I could just pray just for a moment before we begin. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that illuminates for us your love for us in this world, that despite the sin and darkness that we live in, still you love us and still you come to rescue us. And so, Father, be with us today in this moment, that as we have read your word, may it just change our hearts, show us more of the preciousness of Jesus, who gives us an inseparable love that transcends all things and all creation. And so be with us at this time. We just give you thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the last week of why Romans 8 is the greatest chapter of all time. And as I was sort of going through this, I was, I was actually wondering, why are there eight reasons? And I didn't realize there's eight reasons because we're in the eighth chapter. And so now I finally know this. And I was wondering this only because I was, I was thinking in my head, oh, this portion would have actually fit better with last week's. But I realized we needed eight reasons. And so here we are. <laughs> and so I say that in jest. Andrew's going to text me and say, why did you say that? I was like, I did not realize but if you've been following along with us we've had eight reasons to rejoice in the gospel i'm just going to run through them real quickly first to be reminded um, that the first reason we had was that there was no more condemnation for those of us who are in jesus christ that second that because of the gospel there's the gift of the holy spirit that resides in all of us Third, that because of the gospel, we are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters of God. That we are reminded that all creation will be redeemed under God's power. And that the Spirit gives us a better prayer and groaning with us in our struggles and our day-to-day -day living. And that God is working salvation for all of us from all eternity's past to all eternity present to all eternity future. And last week, that God is for us. Who can be against us? He is our strong defender. Today, we close that out by reminding ourselves that there is an inseparable love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's nothing too crazy. It's nothing that's supposed to sort of be illuminating. It's a very simple message for all of us. And yet sometimes the simplest of messages are one of the moments that are the most difficult for us to understand. 
if we were to sort of begin with this, do you believe in an un inseparable love? You know, some of us here are single, I am single, and we aspire to marriage. And on one hand, we see the appeal of a spouse more than someone to be our husbands and wives. We want to experience this in marriage. We want to experience not just deep companionship, but a deeper expression of love. Right? We see this as a human need that as for human flourishing to happen, not just as Christians, but as people, we understand the need for this love. Some of us who are older or who may have experienced different things may see that as almost foolish. Because even though marital love is good, we, often, we also see the frailties that marital love is difficult to sustain. And that even in a group this size, invariably there are probably some of those who have experienced marital love that has been fractured. Time and time again, we see the difficulty of love. We see the difficulty of, though it's just a four-letter word that we say so easily, and even though we hope for an inseparable love, our cynicism, our realism, our optimism sets in, and we set up these false expectations of what an inseparable love is and what it looks like. And our challenge today, as we sort of wrestle through this passage, is to look at what Scripture offers, that it offers to us an inseparable love that is found only in Jesus Christ. And all other expressions of that love pale in comparison to that. And for us to draw closer evermore to Jesus. And so if you're taking notes, our main point for today will be this, that nothing will separate us from the love of God, because by the love of Christ we will prevail victoriously. That nothing will separate us from the love of God because by the love of Christ, we will prevail victoriously. As uh, most of us are Americans here, and as Americans, we have a strange sense of optimism. Uh, maybe it's our refusal to give up. Maybe we sometimes delude ourselves to think it's never that bad. Um, but if you take any sort of popular movie, the sort of movie that sort of ran to my mind this week, because we may have been speaking about this, was the movie Armageddon. And if you've ever watched Armageddon, it takes place in the 90s. The premise of the movie is that there's a giant asteroid the size of Texas hurling towards Earth. Right? It's going to cause planet-wide destruction. Everyone on the Earth is going to die. And so what's the magical plan? The magical plan is let's send a bunch of oil drillers with no space training, no engineering training, no training whatsoever. Let's send them on a spaceship to land on an asteroid, dig into the ground a few hundred feet, plant a nuclear bomb, get off the asteroid, explode the bomb, and hopefully the asteroid will split in two. Now, if you, if, you, if you read this, it sounds ridiculous. But when you watch the movie, for a moment, it seems so realistic. Like, oh, that makes sense. You know, Bruce Willis, he's so jacked, he's going to explode that bomb and take his life with him because he loves everyone. And by his love, these things can happen and the earth will be saved. But the entire movie is preposterous in what, it, what it's advocating. And yet we, as, as Americans oftentimes, we're so apt to believe in it. Because behind all of that is an unbridled sense of American optimism. And we need to bask in this, because I think sometimes it sets up false expectations of what love is and what love will be. Because for us, we refuse to embrace this notion of a, a broken, separable love. A love that is so easy to fall apart. And perhaps that's why our gospel is so weak at times. That the reason why we have so much trouble in believing in his God is because we're so prone to think that the love of God 
can be found in so many different things and we have no need for God. God's love is good, but it's not ultimate. God's love is an accessory to all the other loves we can have in this world. And we refuse to realize that that's not the case. When you look at verse 35, you know, Paul lays this out. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? See, Paul lists out a myriad of things that reveal the frailties of love. It's a list that is faceted, rooted in physical, emotional needs and fears, threats to survival and flourishing, things that are happening unto you, whether it's physical violence or emotional turmoil or even self-inflicted inflicted wounds of shame and harm. But these things don't in and of themselves end the love. They reveal the nature of love. And I think what Paul is trying to let us see is this, that those things will, will reveal what love is. And if you push those sort of standards and rubrics to the things that you love in this world, what you see is that there is a break eventually down the line. You know, none of us ever gets married or we date knowing that things aren't going to end well. In fact, we go into those things with an optimism and a hope that things will flourish, things will be good, and we'll be with that person forever. But then things will happen, turmoil will come, struggles will come, and suffering will come. And that heat from those moments, that heat from that circumstance, reveals the cracks. And maybe it was just a small bit of ice coming out of that sea. But as more and more water rushes in, you see the gigantic scope of that issue and that problem in your life. And you see just how difficult it is to love. And on that end, perhaps, then people who are much more secular and humanist are correct. That the notion that all love is broken, that it's just a ticking time bomb that will eventually break down. Now for those of us who affirm an inseparable love, for those of us who struggle with this idea, oftentimes what happens is that instead of having the things we love point us to a greater love in Jesus Christ, often we often make those things ultimate. And what we have to realize is that we have to come to this realization that it's impossible to find in this life. And so either you have a heightened, idealized version of an inseparable love, if you think of sort of every romantic film we've ever watched, or any sort of romance novel, and when you really wrestle with it, you realize it's simply unattainable, or what you have is that love, even if you have it until the end, will wither away. Because what happens in life? We'll all die. I used to do youth ministry at a period long ago, and so we would have a saying, and we would give out dating seminars, because for some reason, when you're in high school, dating seminars are the thing to give. Um, <laughs> But we, we would have a three-point dating summer that this pastor I was serving with, he, he must have gotten from someone else because it was too clever for all of us. We would have a three-point dating summer. It would be three letters, H-J-M. Hajima. <laughs> if you're Korean, you know what it means. But if you're not, H-J-M, Hajima stands for don't do it in Korean. 
Don't do it. And the reason was simple, right? The reason wasn't simply just because we didn't want students to be stupid. Well, we realized that when you're in high school, you have a greater propensity, not because all high school students are insecure, but chances are you're much more insecure. You're trying to find yourself. If you're a parent, you think your teenager is hormonal and emotional. Um, the next girl or guy you meet that you're interested in, you project all of your insecurities, all of your fears, all of your issues onto that person in hopes that what? They'll be your ultimate savior. They'll bring you out of your mess and you'll feel complete and whole. Now, whether you do this in high school, whether you do this in young adult life, or whether you do this for the rest of your lives, the truth of the matter is, no, that's not what happens. We set up these ridiculous expectations of love, love that no one can ever fulfill. We put someone on that pedestal, and boy, do they fall. Maybe we become smart and wise, and we hit the ripe age of 31, I'm 31, and you meet someone amazing, and you realize, oh, I shouldn't place all of my expectations and hope in that person. I should just accept them for who they are. We're both sinners on this path called life. We're trying to love Jesus. Let's just do this together. And we continue on in life. We grow old together. And what happens eventually? No amount of optimism, no amount of hope, no amount of anything can ever change the fact that ultimately our lives are limited by the physical span of who we are. We die. There's a movie called uh, AI, Artificial Intelligence. It was directed by Steven Spielberg. It was the, the, it was the dream child of um, Stanley Kubrick back in the day. And the movie, there's a character in there, um, Haley Joel Osment, who plays a robot child by the name of David. David is a surrogate robot son for a couple who, is, who has a son who's in this sort of stasis of, pretty much he's in a coma. And they're looking for someone to love. And so they bring in this robot child. And David is programmed to have this utmost, unwavering, faithful love to his mother. And he loves his mother. And his mother grows to love him. But eventually, this son who is sick eventually is able to get better, is cured, and the son comes back into the family. And so the family realizes they no longer have a need for David, for this robot child, so they abandon him. The rest of the movie is about his journey to become a, a real human boy, sort of Pinocchio. Um, and eventually, after thousands of years, after pretty much the extinction of the human race, it's a sci-fi film, um, after all humans have passed away, he's discovered by another alien race, and they offer him the option that they can make a clone of his mother, but it'll only last for a day. You can love your mother, but you can only have her for one day. He's unwavering in his, in his commitment to his mother. And so he decides, let's do that. A clone is made of his mother. He loves his mother. He has the most beautiful day of his life in the thousands of years he's lived. And as she falls asleep, going away into death, she tells David that she has always loved him. In that moment, he feels the everlasting moment he has been waiting for. It's a beautiful movie, but if you really wrestle with that, what happens? The next day he's gonna wake up and he won't have his mother. He won't have the love that he has placed his whole hope into. 
That's not to say those things are bad. But that is to say that within the Christian framework of love, all these loves are to point to an ultimate inseparable love. The question is, is that what we're aiming towards in our life? Or rather, is the love of God something that we have so that we can bolster up the love that we already have in our lives in hopes that we can make those things more permanent? Very quickly, what we see is this, that this is a cycle that we fall into. Our hearts will be broken over and over again. We wander from the cynicism of relegating ourselves to the fact that there is no such thing as inseparable love. Our experiences, our circumstances, our lives reflect this in our brokenness. But then quickly we encounter something or someone and we quickly turn to place all of our hope, trust, and ultimately love in that only to realize that you will either fail at being the love that we so desperately want because we place it on a pedestal that nothing can meet. Or like all things on this side of eternity, it will wither away in death. Now the issue is this, that all ideologies, all religions, all peoples are wrestling with this. In Eastern ideology, particularly for the Buddhist tradition, the impetus is what? To reject the desire of loving one another and the associated emotions and feelings. Right? You know there's a cycle of love. You know that it's a cycle of love that you'll keep falling into, that your heart will be broken. You'll find it once again, but then it'll be broken again. So what do you do? You take yourself out of that cycle. You say, I'm going to reject love as a desire. And instead, I'll just focus on myself. There's a Korean movie from 2003 by the director Kim Ki-dok. Um, the title is Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. It's a sort of weird film, but the entire movie takes place at a Buddhist monastery that's sort of floating in a lake. It's a really beautiful film if you ever watch it. And it, it's the story of a master and apprentice who go through the cycles of life. And as you go through it, you have a master. He's probably in his 40s in the beginning of the film. He, a, a baby boy is abandoned at his monastery. And he takes this baby boy. He, he raises up this baby boy essentially as his son. But what happens? This boy goes through life. He, he discovers girls. He decides that he's attracted. And so he runs off of the girl. He realizes that girl wasn't everything he wanted. And so he comes back. But in the lieu of coming back, he had committed some terrible acts of violence against this woman. And so he's arrested and taken away. Eventually, the, the master passes away and his apprentice comes back. He resides in the monastery. The apprentice becomes the master. And another baby boy is dropped off. It's a cycle that you see emerge in the film, very reminiscent of sort of Eastern ideology in which the way that you break out of that is to simply reject it. For us in the West, for us who are sort of Westerners, sort of surrounded by Western ideology, we find the opposite, that we are so motivated by the present and the material, the way to fulfillment is to simply accept the truth of it, to accept the fact that this is what it is. This is a cycle that we can't break out of, and we need to simply enjoy it, enjoy the journey, enjoy the ride. And when we get to the tough parts of life where we find a broken love, we simply reject it and deny it and reject it as the truth of what it is. 
So much of marketing and media is what? Feeding us these ideas that these things are temporal and we can instead find something better to latch onto. That in the brokenness of everything we have, we find something else to latch onto. That for those of us who are aging, we offer what? Skincare to make you look young, right? For those of us who are dying, what do we tell people? Instead of dying and suffering, you, should, you ought to die in dignity. It's escapism at its finest. Embrace the moment and when faced with suffering and rejection and brokenheartedness, run to this nearest escape. Whether that be doses of Netflix or doses of the next painkiller. Anything to escape the cycle until the delusion takes effect again and we find ourselves in the beginning of finding something to love. It is this cycle of broken-hearted love that fails to capture us for what we need to see. Because everything around us that we love, everything that around us that we seek to place our hope and trust and love into, isn't supposed to be ultimate. And it's not supposed to be a cycle for us to sort of go through over and over again. What it's supposed to do is to point us to not simply just an idealized, inseparable love that you read about and you see in movies and you listen to in music. It's the point is to the not just idealized, but the realized person of Jesus Christ in his work for us on the cross and in death. And so the promise that Paul lays out for us is this, that if the gospel is true, not just in your heart, but in history's past, then there is an inseparable love that is found in Jesus Christ that pales comparison to all other things, not just because he loves you, but because he loves you by laying down his life for you. And that we as his church, we as his body, we as his bride, we have a radical solidarity with Jesus. That he who has overcome all things has done so that we too can overcome all things. Look at what Paul describes for us in verse 35 and 38. Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Later he says what? Neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation. These are expressions of the struggle of love. These are expressions for us to wrestle through. How do you know the love is legit? If you can go through all of this and still come out at the end of the tunnel knowing that you are still loved. You know, verse 36 has a sort of weird quote, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That comes from Psalm chapter 44, verse 22. And if you read the context of Psalm chapter 44, it's about the people of Israel who understand God's faithfulness. They know who God is and what God has done to save them. But at this moment in their life, at this time, they're undergoing much persecution and struggle and trial. And they point to God, not just one who has even permitted these fallships to fall upon them, but they point to God as the one who has initiated some of these things. And they come to God saying, God, we're not at fault. What have we done? They're not completely blameless, but they realize that they have been obedient to the things that God has commanded them to do. 
But what they don't ask is, God, why is this happening? Instead, their response is to go before the Lord and cry for him to arise to rescue his people. Verse 23, which is, the, which is the verse right after what Paul quotes, says this, Awake! Why are you, why are you God, sleeping? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. It's a plea for God to come to the rescue of his people who are suffering and lamenting over the current estate of their lives. And it's this plea that if you wrestle with it, what it really comes down to is that it's always looking to Jesus. It's always looking to God, who's going to be the one who shows his, his love in the midst of all those trials, in the midst of all those afflictions, in the midst of all that persecution. Because the false promise of the gospel is that none of these things will happen to you. But Paul takes it as a given that these things will happen. Paul takes it as a given that you will suffer, that you will go through hardship, that you will feel physical danger in your life, that you will go through emo emotional turmoil, that you will feel destitute and hopeless and lost and wandering. Paul takes it as a given. But still, Paul says, there is the inseparable love of God. God with us in the gallows by taking on human flesh and joining with us. God with us in Jesus Christ's humanity, knowing our every affliction, every struggle, every temptation, and every frailty. God with us in Jesus Christ's divinity, showing to us power over all things, not just idealistic, but realistic. That in God's desire to save us, he will love us and call us to be his. And for us to say that he is ours, we can overcome because Jesus overcomes. That if you look at this, what you see is that, is that if Jesus didn't go through all the things that he endured for us, then the love we would have with Jesus would be so much weaker. There would be no identification. It would simply be transactional. There would be no love. It would simply be payments. But the miracle of the gospel is this, that the cross is central to this. How can the love of God be inseparable? How can it promise overwhelming victory in lieu of all things, in the midst of all things? How can it make us more than conquerors? Because Jesus Christ is the one who endured it all. He faced tribulation, he faced distress, he faced persecution and famine. He was naked on the cross for us. He was put to danger and pressed against the sword. He endured death, he endured life. He had angels serving him, he had demons oppressing him. He lived in all eternity seeing the scope of all creation, seeing all the powers that will come and go the heights and the depths of everything around him. Everything that was subservient to him and under him for a moment in history came to rule over him and to break him down. Our union with Jesus Christ can only be effective as to what Jesus himself undergoes. 
that if he doesn't understand us, if he doesn't empathize, if he doesn't simply just sympathize, but also empathize with us, if he has not gone through these things that we see in 35 to 39, then there's no point in espousing an inseparable love in Jesus Christ. But he did. It's not some story that we tell people saying, oh, look at this story of Jesus, of how he loves. That's a historic reality for all of us to gasp onto. That Jesus walked on this earth so many years ago, pleading with people, loving people, enduring hardship, facing persecution by the people we came to love. And he did these things for the sake of loving his people, for the sake of laying down his life for the cost of his people, for the sake of making you his, so that you can know his inseparable love. And to break the cycle of love that is in your life, to break the cycle of you holding on to all these other things, thinking that they can be better than Jesus. The assurance of Roman 8 lies fully within the life and work of Jesus Christ. For those of us who struggle with seeing love as completely broken and divorced and devastated by the human condition, Jesus fights against this by laying down his life, not for his benefits, not for his benefit of gazing upon you and saying, there is so much to die for. There is nothing to die for, and so he dies. Jesus is the only one who can offer such a thing because he doesn't simply just idealize love. He embodies love by going to the depths of hell and back for you. That he would experience all things for you. Not just in a sort of realm within your mind, but a realm within this actual earth. That whatever we have projected onto people we have loved with our insecurities and doubts, he will not just meet them, he will exceed them. Not because he's a genie in a bottle for you to find satisfaction from, but he is the God most high who has come to pour out his love upon you. And if Jesus was loving enough to take the cross up the hill on Golgotha, oh, 2,000 years ago, he did so not because he did something wrong, but because he willingly placed himself into the path of death. And if Jesus was powerful enough to endure the death on the cross and rise again three days later, that for us is sign and proof of an inseparable love. The issue is whether or not you will affirm and believe and trust in that. Because that is a love that will far exceed anything we will ever want. It's a love that's not contingent on us to perform, on us to perform to a certain standard or a rubric. It's not contingent on us to lay across sacrifices and offerings. It's contingent wholly upon God's unconditional love for his people. And whether we will affirm what? That Jesus Christ is our Lord. What can we do? We look to Jesus and we see the brokenness he endures for us. We see all that he has walked in this life for. And we are reminded that we no longer need to stand in hate or in broken love. We no longer need to cling to these idealistic, optimistic versions of love that pale in comparison 
to what God has to offer. We stand in the conquering, victorious love of Jesus Christ that has no basis in what you have or will do, but has its basis in what he has done for you in conquering the mountains and the seas for you. Jesus says this in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our fears don't stand a chance when we stand in his love. And his love, how firm a foundation it is for us to grasp onto this inseparable love that is made true and complete oh so many years ago. And still we wait eagerly long for him to return and to make real for us evermore his inseparable love for us that displayed for us on the cross. Let's pray. Father God, we are reminded of your love. Who shall separate us from your love? Nothing. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. And so remind us of that. Remind us of the overwhelming, prevailing victory that we have in you. That we who were once lost as sheep without a shepherd have been found by you, carried by you, loved by you. So that we can cling on ever more to your promises, both made true now, through your death and resurrection, and will be made true on that day of glory when you return again. And so continue to be with us. Mold our hearts. May we continue to stand on your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. Here's the dismissal. Let us go forth and uh, to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace.